Thank you, Bill. Shall we just pray? Father God, by your Spirit, will you inspire us, challenge us, strengthen us, and comfort us as we study your word this morning. Amen. Well, welcome to you all on Father's Day. When I was asked to preach today, my first thoughts were to have a theme on Father's Day. Yet when Dave preached on Pentecost Sunday two weeks ago, I was so captivated afresh by the person of the Holy Spirit that I knew I wanted to bring more to you today about the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, God is kind, isn't he? On Tuesday of this week, I discovered that last Sunday was Trinity Sunday. He knows I love a link. So today, we're going to be looking at God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In preparation, I reread a couple of books that I had on the Holy Spirit dating back to the 90s. Some of them were helpful and some of them really were not. Um, I've watched a number of YouTube videos and realised that there's such diverse opinions on the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Um, many of those opinions on the internet were very forcefully delivered, which I didn't find very helpful. And I also found on spending time on YouTube. There's an awful lot of nonsense out there, isn't there? Um, (laughs) For me, the nonsense that kept popping up was conspiracy theories on the royal family. I don't don't know where that came from. Anyway, um, on Tuesday, a small group, I shared what I was planning to preach today. And some of my small group are here, but I got some wonderful advice Um, There's a Latin phrase which Rio will bring up for us, omne trium perfectum. Now, how's that for a small group bit of advice? Um, It means everything that comes in threes is perfect. And I looked that up, as I do, and apparently one recent study found that in advertisements, speeches and other messages designed to have a persuasive effect three claims work best. So perhaps you can help me with these. With these. A miles a day helps you rest and, work, rest and play. Yeah. Crossing the road campaign from when some of your children were little or grandchildren maybe. Stop, look and listen. See, it sticks in there, doesn't it? Barack Obama used the famous phrase, yes, we can. And Tony Blair was education, 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 which isn't quite so inventive. Um, So the Baptist three-point sermon may not be such a bad thing after all. But at the other end of the spectrum, I had some wonderful advice um, in small group on how to introduce the concept of the Holy Trinity to children. Perhaps Rio can bring that one up. The Jaffa Cake. Now, I know it makes us smile, but that idea of the three-layered biscuit, or is it cake, who knows, um, it's really, really stayed with me, and I found that 
very helpful. Um, because I've found that the Holy Trinity is a difficult concept for us to grasp. And I'm no theologian, and I don't feel it's my place to preach, or to teach, rather. So I'm not going to even attempt to go into any depth. But I do want to look for a few moments at each of the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. I'll try to share the scriptures that have captivated me, and my prayer has been that God will speak to you too through these scriptures this morning. Now, this picture of a Jaffa cake may be disrespectful to to some of you, so here's another diagram that I've found, and I'll leave it up there because it may speak to you more than any words that I can bring to you this morning. So let's start with God the Father. Our Old Testament reading came from the first two verses of the Bible. In the beginning, God. He was right at the start of everything. And then moving on to verse 2, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Right at the beginning of creation, God the Father and God the Holy Spirit were there. If we whiz forward to the New Testament in the Gospel of John, not by accident, this Gospel starts with the same phrase, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. So who was the Word? Well, verse 14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And I'm sure they're familiar words to many of us. The Amplified Bible kind of adds a bit of extra meaning to these verses, and it reads, In the beginning, before all time, was the Word, Christ. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God himself, He was continually existing in the beginning, co-eternally with God. So there we have it. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, right at the beginning of time. God in three persons. So let's have a move on to look at God the Son, Jesus Christ. We read his story in the Gospels. We see prophecies in the Old Testament pointing to him. We read of his brief time on earth after his resurrection. He's our supreme example, the one we follow and try each day to become more and more like. In John's Gospel he says, No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. He's perhaps, Jesus is perhaps the easiest person of the Trinity for us to understand. And in many ways, that makes our study of him the most challenging. Because we read in Philippians 2, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. 
Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. God the Father, in in many ways so difficult for mankind to comprehend, he became human. He stepped into his own creation to live as a man amongst us, showing us his perfect, sinless nature and giving us the supreme example of how we should be living as children of God. In Christ, God the Father chose to humble himself, to limit his divine qualities and experience the human limitations that we all know. Jesus was dependent on God the Father for his power, for his miracles, for his ability to lead a sinless life. Again, in John's Gospel, we read, Jesus said, Very truly, I tell you, the Son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his Father doing, because whatever the Father does, the Son also does. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all he does. We never tire, do we, of reading the Gospels and hearing the stories of the love Jesus showed to everyone, regardless of their status in life. We read of the people he healed, sometimes by touch and sometimes by words and commands alone. Such was God's power working within him. And we know this earthly ministry of God, the Son, lasted only some three years or so. For at the time appointed by God the Father, we read again from Philippians that God the Son humbled himself still further by becoming obedient to the Father to the point of death, even death on a cross. With the prospect of the cross before him on Jesus' final night on earth, His thoughts were not for himself, but for his disciples, his close friends, and the ones he he would send his spirit to. We heard some of Jesus' teaching in our reading from John 14. And I think from the text we can feel his sense of urgency because he's got so much to tell them. And later on that night he said, It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. He goes on to pray for his disciples and then for all believers. He's praying then for us here today. And he ends with these words, Righteous Father, though the world does not know you, I know you. And they know that you have sent me. I have made you known to them and will continue to make you known in order that the love you have for me may be in them and that I myself may be in them. The perfect, sinless Son of God was crucified as a once and for all sacrifice for our sin to open up the way for us to join him in eternity when we believe in him and choose to follow him. But as promised, he didn't leave us as orphans. He sent his Holy Spirit to be with us. Jesus said of the Holy Spirit, he will guide you into all the truth. 
He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears. Well, isn't that what Jesus did? That's what we heard in our readings. Jesus only did what the Father, he saw the Father doing. Yes, but Jesus was limited in that he was a human being. He was limited to being in one place at one time. So the Holy Spirit, you could say, is Jesus without boundaries or limitations. Jesus without limitations. We know that the promised Holy Spirit came in power at the festival of Pentecost after Jesus' death. And the whole of the book of Acts continues to tell us the spread of the good news of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit working in the lives of the disciples. So for these last few minutes, I want to look at the power of the Spirit working in the lives of these men and just see what it can mean for us today. So can we remember back to when Jesus first called his disciples? They were his constant companions and they watched him in action. They watched him as a preacher, a teacher, a healer, a miracle worker, a leader and a man of prayer. And after an initial period of watching him at work, Jesus provided an opportunity for on-the-job training for the disciples. He sent them out two by two and they preached repentance. They drove out demons and they cured the sick. Their first attempts at evangelizing proved quite successful. But despite their strong start, the disciples were soon in trouble. They were unable to heal a boy with a demon because their prayer was weak. They often failed to understand Jesus' teaching. At times they showed little faith. They had hard hearts. They were overcompetitive with each other and they showed signs of possessiveness, selfish ambition and jealousy. In other words, even after being with Jesus, they were just like us. Worst of all, when Jesus was arrested, they all left him and fled. And as some, and as a group, they were nowhere to be found during his trial, torture, conviction and burial. Some group of friends they were, we might think. But then came Pentecost and the arrival of the promised Holy Spirit who came upon them with power. And these disciples were transformed. After being filled with the Holy Spirit, Peter, who was one of them, who'd hidden in fear in that locked room with the other disciples behind locked doors, he stood up before the crowds and he bravely and loudly proclaimed Jesus. And in his sermon on that day, we read that 3,000 people accepted the truth of his message and were baptized. Peter had changed. He was quick to give the glory to Jesus and not take any of the credit for himself. In his sermon, he said, Jesus was taken up to sit at the right side of God and he was given the Holy Spirit just as the Father had promised. Jesus is also the one who has given the Spirit to us. And this is what you are now seeing and hearing. 
Peter didn't claim any of the power for himself. And the book of Acts is an amazing testimony to the power of the Spirit working in these ordinary men who just spent time with Jesus. And of course, we hear the the story of the dramatic conversion of the Apostle Paul and the subsequent power of the Holy Spirit working in his life. And the good news for us is that that same Holy Spirit we read about, he's still working in the world today. If we've accepted the truth of the gospel and decided to follow Jesus, we too have the Holy Spirit living in us. He comes to live in us when we believe. Ephesians 1, we read, You also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The Father gave us the Son, the Son gave his life for us, and the Spirit gives us life and faith in Christ. As I said earlier, there's a a lot of teaching on the internet about the Holy Spirit. And there's still, certainly on the videos I've found, there's a a tendency out there to pressurise into seeking the Holy Spirit's power for gifts and signs, rather than asking him to to make us more Christ-like in our character. Um, Before I came here in in the 1980s, I went to a church where we were encouraged in meetings to ask for the baptism of the Spirit and to start speaking in tongues as a sign that we'd received the gift of the Spirit. And for me, as someone who'd experienced spiritualism in the family and I'd seen a family member go into a trance and speak in a strange voice, I was really frightened And and it took some years and solid teaching here just to take away that fear of the Spirit. There's no need for hype and emotion when we talk of the Spirit. And there are many interpretations out there about the term baptism of the Holy Spirit. And you'll no doubt have your own thoughts on what the term means And I've no intention of aiming to tell you what the correct interpretation is. One explanation I heard on my venture into YouTube world, I found it very helpful, even though it was quite an odd analogy. So, analogy, that's the word, sorry. Um, I've got ology on the brain. He quoted from John 7. Jesus said, let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. The preacher likened the baptism of the Holy Spirit, in other words, being fully immersed in the Spirit, to the sinking of a ship. Now, he used the example of the Titanic, which I'm not sure is very helpful, but stay with me. Um, A ship is made up of watertight compartments, and for it to sink, 
to be totally immersed in the water, every compartment must fill with water. If we think of our lives as being made up of compartments, then if the Holy Spirit is to flow through us like living water, we must open up each compartment, our minds, our personality, our actions. We must open them all up to the work of the Holy Spirit. The preacher suggested that baptism in the Spirit means releasing him to work in us and through us. And I know that releasing more of the Spirit's flow in my life has been a a lifelong journey, and it's a constant learning process. But as the flow steadily increases, we see changes If we want the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, we must be willing to let him change us. And that change can only be for the better. Selfishness can be replaced by love. Sadness by joy. Chaos by peace. Anger can become patience. An uncaring nature can turn to kindness Dishonesty dishonesty to goodness, disloyalty to faithfulness, harshness to gentleness, and being headstrong to having self-control. It's the Holy Spirit's desire and purpose to produce Christ-like character in us, to sanctify us and help us in all we do point to Jesus Christ. We can't reproduce the character of Jesus on our own, by our own strength. Jesus was so loving and gracious and patient. And there's so many ways we're not like him. The Apostle Paul struggled with it. He said, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I don't do. But what I hate, I do. And that's the Apostle Paul We really need the Holy Spirit to help us out, don't we? I have a final YouTube example. This is another analogy. This time it's using the familiar symbol of the dove. And this is what the preacher said. The Holy Spirit's power in us can be strengthened or weakened depending on how we live our lives. As Jesus was baptised at the start of his ministry by his cousin John, John testified, I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. He suggested that the key word is remain. The dove remained with him. It never left him. The dove is a shy and sensitive creature. We make him fly away by our wrong actions and attitudes. It's so easy to grieve him, to grieve the Holy Spirit. You won't lose your salvation when you do. But if you want the conscious presence of God in your life, find out what grieves the Holy Spirit and don't do it. And if you want to follow that up, Have a look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 29 to 31. There's a good list there, for starters, of what grieves the Holy Spirit. 
Find out what grieves the spirit and don't do it. I think that's good advice to finish on. How God the Father works in you by his spirit will be different to how he works in me. What he needs to do in you to bring you closer to a Christ-like character will be different to what he still needs to do in me. So I'm going to invite you for a few moments now, just quiet, a few quiet moments for you perhaps to have your own conversation with God about that. And I'll ask him to reveal to you in your own timing the changes he wants to make in your life. Um, And when we've prayed, I'll finish with an amen and hand over to Karen. Let's just pray.